This is part four, a gospel-dominated life. And so ask yourself, can my life be characterized as gospel-dominated? Do people around me get the impression that the gospel is wonderful? That the gospel is the most glorious thing that there is? Do they get the impression, on the other hand, that the gospel is really no big deal to me? So I think ask yourself, search your heart in terms of these questions as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you'll turn in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9, we'll start at verse 24. Paul is talking about spiritual discipline in this passage. My sources include Kenneth Chaffin's uh, communicator's commentary on 1 Corinthians. Alan Perkins' message from uh, uh, Sermon Central entitled, Running the Race. A message by Kenneth McKinley, Running to Win, and a book by Roger Ellsworth from the Wellwind Commentary Series on 1 Corinthians entitled Strengthening Christ Church. So stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Holy Word as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 24. Hear the Word of God. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They, they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the celebration of life, Lord, that we could have today. Thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, for watching over Mike Vendrunen. Please help him today. Strengthen him, Lord, in his body. Strengthen him in his body and his spirit and give him such a tenacity to fight that he will come back to us completely well soon. We praise you, Lord, for watching over him and Lisa and their family. And we thank you for your word and thank you for what you have to say to us today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. It was eight o'clock on a Friday night. Crystal City, Missouri was covered with snow. Most of the seventh graders in town were out at the movies or in front of the tube, but not William Warren. Earlier that day, Bill had shoveled the driveway beneath the basketball hoop of the family garage. Snow was not going to stop him. Beneath the glow of a floodlight with thin gloves on his hands, Bill was pursuing the prize. He began at one position and shot and shot until he could make 25 in a row. Then he changed positions and began the drill again. For three hours a day and eight hours on Saturday, this gangly teenager practiced the game, often alone in the gym or in the driveway, long after his friends had gone home. He took a basketball with him whenever they went on vacations, once spending a good chunk of a cruise in Europe, bouncing the ball up and down the corridors of the Queen Elizabeth. As an older teen, Bill found time, though, to teach Sunday school each week to the children 
and to study hard for his classes. You see, if he was going to win the prize, he knew it would demand prioritizing. It would require paying the price. When Bill graduated from high school, he was offered 75 scholarships to play basketball. He declined all of them, choosing instead to attend Princeton University. Why did he do that? Because his eye was on the prize. Even so, he decided to still play basketball for Princeton. In his freshman year, William Warren averaged more than 30 points a game, and he broke a collegiate and professional record by shooting a record 57 free throws without a miss in a row. Bill's eye was always on a prize much larger than athletics or fame. Being a great basketball player was only a small part of his larger passion, which was to become the best human being, the best influence for good that he could possibly be. So when he could have coasted into a pro contract, Bill instead went off to Oxford University, choosing to study politics, philosophy, and economics. He let the sure money go for the chance to equip himself for an even larger calling. In 1967, believing that athletics offered him a springboard to even greater influence in the world, William Warren Bradley, Bill Bradley, signed on with the New York Knicks. Some of you my age and older, you know who Bill Bradley was probably. Pastor Dan Meyer writes this about Bill Bradley. I met Bill Bradley for the first time when I was 11 years old. My father and he had become friends while working together in the Harlem Street Academy Youth Program. Bradley agreed to spend May the 9th campaigning in my dad's first run for political office. So I got to tag along. We picked him up about 8 a.m. outside of his Manhattan apartment. Looking back now, I realize how amazing it was that he was there to meet us that day. You see, the very night before, Bradley and the rest of the New York Knicks had defeated the Los Angeles Lakers in the seventh and the final game of the World Championship Series at Madison Square Garden. It was a time when most people are fixed on the sheer glory of all they've achieved. But by 8 o'clock the next morning, Bill Bradley was already letting go of his grasp on these things, honoring the commitment that he'd made to a friend. This man would eventually become the United States Senator from New Jersey, and he was about to get his first experience on the campaign trail. And like that kid who thought it worth his while to shoot baskets in the chill of a winter's night, Bill Bradley still seemed to count the promise of the prize worth paying the price. You know, I honestly believe that God doesn't necessarily need more preachers in this world. He needs people, people who have embraced the gospel in all facets of life. Because of that, are on their way to changing the world, making the world a better place. Now, if the Apostle Paul were here today, he would tell us that one of the reasons he mentions in our text those who, quote-unquote, compete in the games is on account of the fact that Corinth hosted one of the most famous of the Greek athletic events, second only to the Olympic Games. It was called the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games. Tough one to pronounce. Held every two years, ten miles outside the city of Corinth, you simply could not be a resident in Corinth and not know about these games. 
Not to mention the strenuous training that went into the competition and the preparation for the competition. So for the Corinthians, it was the sporting event of the year, drawing the empire's best talent. It wasn't even close to being like our Olympics, which has turned into just one of the many different options that are out there. But in comparing the games to the Christian life, Paul felt the Christian life was the real race for two reasons. Number one, the crown that the runners received was only temporary. That's in your outline if you're following along. The crown the runners received was only temporary, while the reward the Christian would receive would last forever. Secondly, the prize that the runners competed for was only won by one person, while the prize that the Christian competes for could be won by many people. Obviously, Paul wanted to inspire the Corinthians to win their race, to settle for nothing short of conquering any spiritual hindrances that they might encounter. In fact, three things stand out, three lessons that we'll look at about Paul's tenacity and his determination to win the real race. And the first is this. He was single-minded. Verse 26. Therefore, I do not run like someone running Aimlessly, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Paul talked about the runners preparing for the contest. And here he talks about the boxer engaged in a fight. Deontay Wilder, if you know that name, is the WBC heavyweight champion of the world. He is 40 and 0. 40 and 0. With 39 KOs. 19 in the first round. Think about that. He has stopped every opponent he has ever faced. In the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, he won the bronze medal, which is where he gets the nickname, the Bronze Bomber. He's 32 years old. He grew up 90 miles from here. On his Twitter account, here's what it says. If you give God the glory, he will give you the victory. So one thing you can say for sure about Deontay Wilder, he has a single focus. Winning. Winning. One thing you say about the Apostle Paul, his only focus in life was the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing the good news of the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a gospel dominated person. And every believer needs to be gospel dominated. Or are you aimless? Are you one of those Christians that's kind of aimless? Someone once said that a man's ultimate desire is to attain immortality. And the Bible puts it this way in Ecclesiastes 3. He, God, has set eternity in the hearts of men. And some try to attain immortality by their accomplishments. Others by the legacy of their children. Still others strive to be so successful that their name might take up a couple of paragraphs in Wikipedia or in an encyclopedia. It's important, whatever it is that you're focused on, to be sure that it is worthy of your single-mindedness. So if I were to put you on the spot today, let me see if you could answer a couple of questions. Not just for me, but for yourself. First question is, who am I? Who am I? And secondly, why do I exist? Who am I as a person and why do I exist? Your answer to these two very important questions will probably represent the choice between two timelines. 
one that lasts for 70 years or so, and one that lasts forever. Paul chose the latter. Look with me in the book of Philippians. One of the prison epistles where Paul was in prison, he wrote to his friends in Philippi. He's talking about growth in Christ and following Christ and what's important to him. And he talks about whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. So Paul lost really his reputation among the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And and he says, who cares? The most important thing in my life is knowing Jesus Christ. Can you say that? Can you say that? And then it goes down a little further in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing that I do, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. He was single-minded. He was focused on being in the presence of Christ where Jesus would look at him and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what he lived for. He was single-minded. Secondly, he was personally invested. He was personally invested. That means he was committed regardless of the price. He knew that nothing good comes easy. You need to remember that. Nothing good comes easy. And, and since he knew his purpose was a worthy one, he knew that any sacrifice that he had to make for Christ was worth it. Verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So it takes more than determination and desire to win in anything. It helps to have those things, but but good intentions are never enough. So in order to win, you have to train and you have to prepare, not just to compete, but to win. And then when trouble comes, and and it will come, we will not allow our difficulties to make us want to quit. And so there's so many people in this church that could say the suffering and the struggles that they're going through right now. And some of you can say, well, right now I've got, I've got none of that. Your time's coming. It's no doubt your time's coming. Prepare for those times. Because when those times come and you're not ready for those times, it will be devastating to you and to your life. It's the most difficult thing in the world to go through trouble and struggle and suffering. But especially if you're not prepared for it. So you must be in good spiritual shape. And to do that, you must be personally invested in training. How do you do that? Paul says this in verse 27. He says, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 
So Paul is talking about self-discipline. He's talking about making a decision as to what it is that you want to accomplish, spiritually speaking, and then doing whatever is necessary to ensure that you follow through. So I want to give you a term that if you're taking notes, you can write down this term, mortification. Mortification. M-O-R-T-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. Mortification. It's a theological term that basically is about putting to death... Mortifying, putting to death your old nature so that Christ might reign in and through you. John Owen is someone that I have on my shelf, and he wrote 400 years ago, 350 years ago. He's still being read by many, many people today. He's just that good. He had a difficult life. John Owen was born in England. He was born in 1616 on the day that William Shakespeare died. And then four years later, the pilgrims came to New England. So get the time frame there. He married. He was a pastor and a chaplain. He married and was married for 31 years. His wife bore him 11 children and all but one died as a child. And the one that lived was a young lady and she died in young adulthood. So every child born to his wife died. So that's one every almost three years throughout their 31 years of marriage. Try to put your hands around that. And he said this about mortification. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I think about John Calvin and the quote that is one that very appropriate for the life that we live and the, the world we live in. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. You know, and I know what this next week is. You know what next week is. And so we have to really think hard about our lives, don't we? And to evaluate ourselves. To make sure that football doesn't become this idol that is so all-consuming that none of us think about anything else. We need to have a gospel-dominated life. And, and yes, we can have fun and enjoy football games. We can, uh, you know, I love playing golf. And I have to also be careful that it doesn't become so dominating in my thoughts about how I play or what I'm going to do and so forth. So trust me, this preacher knows what it is to talk about idols and to look in the mirror and question my own self and examine my own self. And I hope you'll do the same thing. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those spiritual heroes we talked about last week, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And so what is that sin in your life that so easily entangles? Pray and ask the Lord for grace to help you with that sin that so easily entangles you. Be killing that sin by the grace of God, or it will be killing you. And so there's three principles here. Number one, one thing that you're doing, you need to stop doing. I'm not sure what that is, but something maybe dominates just a little bit too much in your life. So one thing you're doing, you need to stop doing. Secondly, one thing you're not doing, you need to start doing. So what spiritual practice do you need to incorporate into your life that is not a part of your life now? And then third principle is success comes to the one who's committed. Are you committed? And the question follows, how are you really doing spiritually? Are you really willing to pay the price in this race we call the Christian life? 
And you can nod your head and say, yes, I'm, I'm willing to pay the price. But is that the real you or just the, the, the you that you like people to think you are? See, there really are two yous. There's the visible you and the real you. The visible you is the you that's known by others. But that's not necessarily the real you. The visible you could be the image that you worked so very hard to project. The real you, on the other hand, is the you that is known by God. Did you know that God can change the, the real you and enable you to be all that God intended you to be? But guess what? You have to cooperate and so let's go back to Philippians, Philippians 2 this time, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, because he was in prison, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking to believers here. You believers, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So yes, God is at work. If Christ is in you, then he is at work in you. But you have to be also cooperating in this whole thing of growing in God's grace, making good choices and decisions on your own behalf. God is at work, but you still have to do your part. Are you personally invested? And if not, this is a perfect time, a perfect time in this church to reinvest yourself or invest yourself for the first time in the opportunities that we have afforded here at First Presbyterian. Sunday school classes are offered each week for all ages. Bible study classes are beginning next week. This is a great time to say, it's time I get started and get serious about my spiritual growth. Because you really don't grow very well alone. That's why we have the body of Christ. So that you have iron sharpening iron to help you in your spiritual growth. Small groups begin tonight. There are two groups that you could jump into this evening. Each Wednesday is the gathering, which is also a, a midweek opportunity to grow in your faith. To get to know others in the body of Christ. And to become personally invested. Are you? And then the third lesson here is the third key to Paul's life. And race was that he was victory bound. He was single minded. He was personally invested. He was victory bound. And that was our first verse. Verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one, only one gets the prize. Paul was so devoted. He was absolutely consumed with winning his race, with pleasing the Lord. He wanted to win the prize or he didn't even want to compete. And you know what? I call that very competitive. I bet that Paul was a competitive person. I've always been accused of being competitive. I do not apologize for that accusation. When I complete, when I compete in anything, I want to win. I remember being in, in ORU at uh, intramural football. We were playing football and we're playing another team and we got together to pray before the game. This is one of those moments that I just never forget. And this guy's praying for our team. He says, if God help us to, to beat these guys bad and to be able to celebrate for your glory. Amen. And I'm like, I have never heard anybody pray like that. I've never heard anybody pray like that. I said, these are, these are Christians over here we're, we're going to compete against. He said, I don't care. 
He said, we want to win. And, and so I, I'm glad to be in good company because I'm convinced the Apostle Paul was competitive, but only about one thing, and that's the right thing. Now, how do I know that? Because I know that Paul was on the right path. How do I know that? Back to Philippians. This is our verse of the week. It's in your bulletin, right at the bottom of the outline. Philippians 3, verse 14. I didn't read 14. I read 12 and 13 of chapter 3. This is verse 14. I want you to read it out loud with me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'd love to say that's the end of the sermon. It's not. If you're taking notes, you know that. There's some blanks not filled in. Paul is talking about the real race. To win, you have to follow the right path. And following the right path has two components. And these are very important components. Number one, you must be sure that you're following Christ. You must be sure you're following Christ. You have to be sure that above all, you've received the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that you're trusting Christ alone, by faith alone, for your salvation. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so as you live your life, are you living by faith in Christ and living in accordance with Scripture alone through the teachings of God's holy word? So you must be sure that you're following Christ. And then secondly, you must seek to glorify God in all that you do. And here's the key. Here's the kicker. God knows your heart. He knows your heart. And if your motives in this life for whatever you do are anything other than a desire to serve and honor God and glorify God, then it counts for nothing. Nothing. Because God does not accept or value accomplishments that are not done in faith. No matter how impressive they might otherwise be. Be sure to live for the glory of God alone and not for any other reason. Why? Because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all for. That's why we're here in this world. It's to make a difference in this world. Wherever God has placed you, He wants you to make a difference. He wants you to live a life that's gospel dominated. So that you're thinking all the time, Lord, how can I reflect the love of Christ? How can you reflect the love of Christ through me today? Help me, Lord, to live a gospel dominated life. Roger Ellsworth, one of my sources, says this, and I quit. We cannot expect to win those around us to something that has not won our highest allegiance and our most diligent efforts. We cannot expect to win those around us to something that has not won our highest allegiance or our most diligent efforts. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gospel that reached even me. Thank you, Lord, that you apprehended me and saved me. Thank you for the instruments you used in that process, Lord. For my best friend who invited me to go to church on a Thursday night so that I could hear the gospel and respond in faith. Jesus, you did that, and I praise you for that. I pray that you'll touch the hearts of boys and girls, young men and young women, other men and women in this place. 
I pray that you will touch our hearts, Lord, and lead us to examine ourselves and see how our race is going. Are we even in the race? Are we dominated by the gospel and its wonderful beauty? Our beautiful Savior that we sang about, that we heard sung about. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being so wonderful, so incredibly great and awesome in coming into this world for us. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us that much. That you came in this world to take our place, to pay a debt we could never pay. So lead us to your throne of grace and mercy, Lord. And give us the hope of the gospel as we leave this place. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen.